If you've been around the church, maybe you've heard a common cliche. How is your walk? That might be, you know, how was your walk with the Lord? How's your walk with God doing? But how is your walk is, is actually not that bad of a question because it's rooted in biblical language. If you just even start in the Old Testament and look at the thousand plus times the word walk is used, over half of those, it's actually used in that figurative sense, uh, talking about somebody who's either walking with God or not walking with God or walking in the ways of God, a la Psalm 119.1, how blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. So the concept of walking with the Lord, walking with God, walking with Christ is is code in the Bible for living a righteous life, living the Christian life, and that's very clear in Ephesians 4 through 6. Uh, right out of the gates in Ephesians 4.1, in light of all that Paul taught in Ephesians 1 to 3 about who you are in Christ, in the first verse, he gets right to talking about what your walk should be like. And he talks about a worthy walk, a walk that's worthy of this great calling the Christian has been called to. And then it goes on from there. Whether it's a new walk, a loving walk, a holy walk, it's all about this transformed life of an authentic believer that gives the clearest evidence that you have a new identity in Christ. And so we have four times, even prior to the passage we're going to study, where Paul is making clear to these Ephesian Christians that there is something that's changed in you. That, that pivot in uh, Ephesians 3 to 4, or the, the hinge that turns, is turned on this idea that you are now someone new in Christ. You have a new identity, and your activity should follow suit. It should be seen. It should be known. And so you're to walk worthy, and that's a summary statement in Ephesians 4.1. And then he talks about in 4.17, I say this and affirm with the Lord, don't walk as the Gentiles did, as you used to do, in the futility of their mind, darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God. That was your old walk. That was your old way. Now you have a new walk. Or in Ephesians 5.2, kind of carrying on this idea, but another angle of it is a, love, a loving walk. One of the ways we know who the true Christians are. They love as they've been loved. And that's inextricably linked to 432, that we forgive as God has forgiven us. A good way to test your love is how well are you doing at forgiving? So the loving walk is part of the new life in Christ. And then lastly, Ephesians 5, 8, uh, distinction, clear as night and day. You used to be walking in the darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of the light. So this is code from Paul that this is the life that we live now as Christians as a result of being saved, not the cause of it. And that's sometimes where we, we uh, mess gospel logic up, is we just go out commanding everybody to walk in a certain way without them actually being converted. And so you produce what? You produce legalists. You know, just, to, oh, just start with the walk. Just tell them what they're supposed to do. Act like a Christian without really doing what we're going to day, talk about today is a careful examination of a person's life. Are you actually in Christ so that those commands to walk worthy or to walk in a new life or to walk in love or to walk in holiness, they're actually able to be done from the heart by somebody whose heart's been changed. So Paul puts the logic in the right order because Ephesians 1 to 3 are all about the gospel and all about the work that God has already done for you so that now that he moves to Ephesians 4 to 6, he can call you to walk in a certain manner. 
Well, you've heard it said when we talk about a walk that you can maybe, uh, you, somebody might say like the phrase, like I could see that guy from a mile away. And it's, you know, obviously sometimes a metaphor, but other times you might say you can even identify a person by the way that they walk. Uh, this was very clear to me. I don't know, it might have been 15 years ago when a friend of mine asked me to um, be the picture taker for his surprise engagement. And so I, you could tell my enthusiasm, I obliged. I mean, it was a great spot. It was the cliffs of Newport Beach, uh, picturesque, a, a good spot to get engaged in. And he said, hey, here's this camera. Can you go hide somewhere in this park that overlooks the ocean? And I want you to capture the magic. And I was just like, I will but you make sure you do your part, okay? Don't be so caught up in like, you know, the show of this thing that now everybody's doing. Uh, just nail the proposal, okay? So we had a deal. And I go hide in a bush, and it's a public place, so it looks kind of creepy. But it's L.A., so you're used to paparazzi. And uh, my friend and his, you know, uh, girlfriend come along, and he picks this bench, and it's, you know, nearing sunset. And I'm in that bush, 10 minutes go by, 20, 30, and I'm looking over, and it's 45 minutes, and they're fighting. <laughs> and I was like, first off, little kids are like going, walking up, like, what are you doing in there? And I'm, I'm like, I'm going to get the cops called on me. So at the very least, I was relocating. Well, as I get up to relocate, she so happens to kind of turn in my direction. And I'm like, man, this, not only is he ruining this thing for himself, I'm going to ruin this now because she knows it's all a big setup. So I think fast and don't laugh at that. And I'm <laughs> turn the other direction and start walking away. And that's when it hit me. I have a certain walk. Uh, it's kind of like a forward lean. Adam, you're walking too fast. And in that like split second, I was like, I got to change my walk because she, if I could do that, it'll throw her off. So instead of being like always in a hurry, ash off walk, I start doing like a slouchy gate back and forth and come to find out later she's like is that your best friend Ashoff he's like no look how he's walking and she bought it and they got right back into their tiff and you know eventually they get engaged I snap the picture and it's wonderful they're now married and lovely people but it hit me that I did have a walk and I had to realize that if I wasn't to ruin the occasion all that being said, the longest walk for the shortest drink of water in an illustration ever was this, spiritually speaking, wouldn't it be wonderful this season that we could be recognized from a mile away by how we walk? That whether it's with the people that we know in this church, friends, family, there would be something so distinct about our Christian walk this holiday season in accord with Ephesians 5 that we could be so easily recognizable as different. That would be, I think, the essence of the holiday spirit, because that would be the essence of our life in Christ, to be recognized as His and belonging to Him. So lucky for us, Ephesians 5 does lay out what this walk looks like. It's a wise walk. It's right there in verse 15. It's, it's a walk that we are to consider first point today. It's a, it's a think about it type of walk. That's what wisdom's calling us to do here. He says, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. If you have the ESV, and I actually like that translation better, because it's more accurate to the literal. It says, look carefully how you're doing this. You know, if you have the NAS, you might just think it's being careful about where I walk, like watch, look before you leap. But this one's saying, before you even take a step, take an account for how you're walking right now. 
Are you walking as somebody wise? Are you walking as someone foolish? It's, a, it's to be a careful examination of the steps you're taking. It reminds me of when I was in ninth grade. I was a world-class long jumper, according to my coach, who was also my dad. And he just said, you know, what, you're just wonderful at this. And, um, you know, that got proven untrue the rest of my career as a long jumper. But what I think about when I hear this verse is, um, in order to hit that board right at the end of a long jump, you know, we're going to maximize your speed and distance, you'd actually have to start running backwards from it to count your steps so that whenever you go to do the real thing, you hit it right at the edge. Because if you're too soon, then you waste all, that, all those inches, maybe even feet. If you're over it, you're disqualified. And so our practices, every practice, before every meet, I would get out there and I would run it in reverse, full speed, and he would mark my steps, 22 steps I would take to get at full velocity to jump like three feet. No, more than that, but you believed me, I guess. And that's what I think about being careful about measuring your steps as a Christian. That's how, how meticulous we're to be. That's how vigilant we're to be about our walk as wise people. Or we're to consider every single step. And so I would ask you, in your Christian life, just in a general sense, are you that careful? Particularly for the believer when you sin. Do you, do you walk it back in your heart, in your mind? Especially if it's a recurring sin, one that you seem to get tripped up over pretty often. Walk that thing back and actually not just, okay, I know what the sin was, I got angry again. But what were the things that precipitated it? What were the steps that led me to that path? I didn't, as people like to say, oh, you know, don't fall into sin. You don't fall into it, really. You build the staircase, one step at a time. And then you find yourself at the top, right? So he's saying, consider carefully how you're walking, Christian. Not as unwise men, but as wise. You want, you want when I'm saying, you know, you want wisdom in this, you want a God's eye view of it. That's what wisdom is in the Bible. It's a God's eye view. It's a view from above. It's, it's like when you're going through a maze. Uh, you're not in the maze trying to find your way out. You're above the maze of life. It reminds me of my favorite thing to do at Pizza Hut as a kid was get that one place setting that had the maze on it. And while you're waiting for the pizza to come, you're finding your way through that maze. Sorry if you're under 40. Totally miss on this illustration. But it's one of the best things besides the pizza buffet. But this is God's eye view of your life. It's, wisdom is when you're looking at it from above. James 3.17 talks about wisdom comes down from above. It's not, down from, it's not up from below. It doesn't start with me. It starts with Him. And He wants us to have a, a God's eye view of our lives, considering it carefully, walking in wisdom. And then He tells us, here's a mark of a wise walk in verse 16. Because you're like, okay, I know I need God's wisdom to walk with wisdom, but um, how do I test it? And he would say, the test is, what do you do with your time? Right there in verse 16. Flowing right out of walking in wisdom is this uh, idea that you need to be making the most of your time. Have you ever thought about wisdom in relation to the way you use your time? That um, Can I tell something about my faith or your faith by your use of time? Well, he's saying if you use it in a way that's most profitable, make the most of it. Your ESV translation, I'm pretty sure, and most of the other ones, which I prefer, say redeeming the time. Not just making the most of your time, but redeeming it. And that word is, uh, it's a Bible word. It's a word for our redemption in Christ. We're redeemed people who then have what? Lives that need to be lived out in such a way that reflect that we were thankful for being redeemed. Ephesians 1, 7, the first 
way in which, we're ta- in which Paul talks about what Christ did for us in the gospel is in verse 7. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood. You think that puts a greater value on your time then? If you've been redeemed by the blood of Christ, then um, it's really a misnomer to say we're living on borrowed time as Christians. We're living on blood-bought, redeemed time. That puts a weight to it, doesn't it? The, why does God have you here still? Well, we, we talked about that a few weeks ago, and we're to live now for the glory of God, according to the glory of God alone. In Ephesians 2, 10, where His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so He's picking up the reality of that later, but He's applying it in relation to time. That it, we just don't let it escape us. We don't let it slip away. We redeem it. We buy it back because we've been bought back. And then he adds a motivator to it. What does he say after that? Why? Because the days are evil. Uh, We're just not living in morally neutral times, spiritually neutral times, are we? I mean, if you're coasting through life, and maybe even as you carefully account for your walk this morning, when's the last time you've thought about this idea of the times you're living in? Spiritually speaking. Beyond the, you know, Times of we talk what's going on in the world politically, spiritually speaking, though, what's going on in the lives of people in your immediate circle? I mean, start redeeming your time there and those relationships. Really, why I'm talking about relationships is because Paul, as he uh, starts this section in verse 15 about the wise walk, it really carries all the way through all these different relationships we have in life that we're to be thinking redemptively about. And when we think about our time this holiday season, one of the maybe uh, things that weighs on my heart to make sure we're aware of is that we just don't get sucked into the, um, I mean, all the good things we love about the holiday season, all the warm fuzzies, but all of the um, kind of just the focus that it's just about us and about what I want to get out of it and the memories I want to make. And that is usually linked to just seeing this time for a lot of amusement and entertainment And those things can strike at the heart of wanting to be purposeful. Uh, Think about the last time you said you were bored. Was it because you were so filled with purpose? You know, you're so busy, so productive. You've never said you were bored in that. I mean, maybe you found your job to be boring. I could admit that. But I'm just saying, like, usually uh, you don't hear the complaint of boredom from somebody who's really purpose-driven, do you? Somebody who's at the task. Boredom is inextricably linked at what? Amusement. When somebody's bored, they're looking for something to distract them, entertain them, uh, do something to amuse them, and so you flip the channel. This show's boring. I'm bored tonight. Can we do something? Well, Paul would have no idea what that idea would be because he's so caught up. And if God has redeemed your time, Christian, and these days are evil, um, You need wisdom to best look at the big picture and say, what should I be focusing right on now? And and, and that element of these days are evil adds this idea that these days are dangerous. Uh, there's, There's an enemy that we have, and he's trying to get us to waste our days away. And, And when we start to see our days in that light, this evil idea, this dark idea, or this dangerous idea, I think it'll wake us up, kind of right there in verse 14. Awake, sleeper. Arise from the dead. Kind of you're being lulled to sleep by the sirens, right? It's just kind of comfortable, okay, this holiday season. 
But when you sense danger is around you, you start walking a little more carefully, don't you? How I walk with my kids around Hickory, night and day difference between how I used to walk around Los Angeles with them. Even the good parts, like Disney World. You're very careful as a parent of a couple kids when you're walking through Disney. One, because just the sheer amount of people there. I remember first time we went with some of the little kids in our crew, and one of them sh- shot off. I mean, it's the worst feeling in the world. Like, where did that kid go? They all look alike. They're all wearing the same, you know? They're all the same height in this area. It just scares you, but it makes you wary of the danger, let alone a few times, you know, going to downtown LA. I took my boys down once for a concert, and we walk out of this venue in the middle of downtown LA at probably 1130 at night. You think I was walking casually around Los Angeles on those streets when there was a danger factor? Not the same as when I go and take them downtown to Hickory and play down at the playground. Sure, something could happen there, but I'm not as vigilant. And Paul's saying, hey, maybe the reason you're not making the most of your time is because you think there's no danger out there. And he says, there's danger out there. The days you're living in right now are evil. But as we close this first section about thinking rightly and carefully considering, this isn't just a matter of self-preservation. Look at verse 17. So then don't be foolish. You're to redeem your time. The days are evil. Walk in wisdom. But here's the thing. This is not just about your own self-preservation, Christian. This is about God glorification. That's the highest end of you making the most of your time. Because your time belongs to Him. It's not yours. There is no such thing as my time as a believer. If my time, every second I have on this planet, since he saved me, is redeemed time, then that time belongs to him. So that's what Paul's getting to to close out verse 17. If you're foolish, if you don't think much of the time you have, if you're walking unwise, if you don't look carefully, then you don't have any clue what the will of God is in your life. You really don't. Because you're living something so, for something so temporary, so passing, what I want now, my needs in this moment, versus saying, man... What I want to do is the will of the Lord. And that language isn't um, meant to be taken in a very, uh, you know, second by second language of like, you know, should I go and, and buy a turkey for Thanksgiving from Food Lion or Publix? I'm really perplexed. Which is the will of the Lord? I don't know which one's cheaper. Maybe, you know, or not. Maybe which one tastes better? Christian liberty. He's saying, big picture, what are you doing with your life right now? Today, this Sunday, do you understand what the will of the Lord is? Can you kind of look around and see how God is moving and working around you in this moment? The people he's brought into your life in this moment, this season you're in, this holiday, the people that will be at your house this week or the house you're going to, and you put all those factors together and go, I got something to redeem right now. That's way more exciting than just kind of being passive And it's really the pagan way of what Paul, in his time, the pagan religions, just thought life was so cyclical. It's just season by season. It comes and goes. The rainy season, the sun season, the growing season. And you all just worship the gods of rain and sun. And and it's just, it's a cycle. And he's not looking at time that way. He's saying this moment you're in, Ephesian Christians, you need to make the most of. But you need wisdom to do it. And when you have that wisdom, then you can actually understand what the will of the Lord is. So that's, that's his point as he brings this all to a close here. Is he wants you to see your time as a gift from God and use it for his purposes. And if you're not walking foolishly, if, you're not, uh, if you are making the most of your time, you should 
have some confidence that God is renewing your mind and renewing your affections to point you in the right direction to be doing the will of God. This is Romans 12 language, isn't it? Like you're not looking for a fortune cookie to tell you what to do tomorrow. A transformed mind tells you what to do tomorrow. Romans 12 2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. He's not saying right there, oh, I get to sit there and see what's happening and go approved, disapproved. No, God's not answering to me. He's talking about discernment, spiritually speaking about you being able to kind of see how all these threads are coming together, where you're at right now, where God's planted you, the season you're in, and there's absolutely a purpose for it. It's not the same purpose as last year and won't be the same purpose as next year. It's what you're supposed to do with this season ahead of you right now, the next 42 days. And the calendar flips to the new year and then maybe some new purpose comes out of that. Maybe it's related. The point is... Are you carefully considering anything? Or are you just going about it? Now, I do want to stop here and say this, that if, if you're hearing this today, and maybe you're even inspired because you're like, man, I need to use my time more wisely. I used to get that on my uh, report card. He needs to use his time more wisely. And preaching, too. And, um, but if you're listening to this, this isn't like a productivity hack. Okay? This, this is about living a life to the glory of God. And if you're not in Christ today, I don't want you walking out of here thinking the high point of this message was you just being motivated to be better with your planner. And, you know, and even you may be inspired to do good things to help people. Go, you know, maybe you're going to volunteer at our community Thanksgiving meal this week. Maybe you're going to go to the, the homeless shelter and help out. Those are all good things. But whose glory are you doing them for? I mean, it's not just about redeeming the time on, on this horizontal level. This is you having a redeemed life. This is what we heard this morning in Colossians 1, that, that you've been what? If you're in Christ, you've been redeemed from a kingdom of darkness into His marvelous light. And so I want to ask you this morning, are you in Christ? Have you been redeemed by His blood? Because if that's not true of your life, then there, you, you have no time to redeem other than this moment right here to get right with God. That's the most important moment in, in your life, is right now, to hear the call of the gospel on your life, to repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ for eternal life. Because otherwise, your time, what's it all heading towards? An eternity apart from God and hell. Versus if you're in Christ today and you've been redeemed by His blood, forgiven of your transgressions, then you have all eternity to be excited for and then this life here and now to enjoy. So come to Christ today. See, I mean, maybe you just even convicted, wow, I mean, I've, maybe you've thought you were a Christian. I mean, the testimony of other people having a, uh, heard those this morning and you think, man, I'm kind of like that person that I just kind of go on by in life and just think I'm a good moral person and somebody else's testimony could put a conviction on your heart this morning that you're not in Christ. I was even listening to a preacher talk this week about somebody's work ethic was what led a coworker to come to Christ and that was the guy that led this preacher to the gospel. And he goes, I, don't, I never even met this girl. She was working at some business and this guy would walk by every day and wonder why she worked the way she did. So disciplined and dedicated. 
And that, that convicted this guy, and he asked her, and he became a Christian, and then this guy led this other guy to the Lord, who's now a preacher. So maybe you're thinking, do I use my time that way? Maybe that angle on it shows some light on. I've never once thought about that my time is God's time. So how's your relationship with God then? Do you really believe he owns you? Your life from beginning to end, and you'll stand before him one day, and the only way you'll stand before him and be welcomed into his eternal glory is to call on Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Have you done that? Because that's the most important moment for you right now. Today is the day of salvation, the scripture says. Cry out to him, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I, I see a friend in the audience here who just keeps telling me as he's going through his own trials of losing people, Adam, I just have to remind myself there's only two things you got to do to get to heaven. You have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation and you have to die. That's all you have to do. Do you see your time this morning that way? Those two simple things solve all of the questions of your eternal life and the eternal destiny. I got to be right with Jesus Christ and then it's up to him when he takes me home. Have you done that today? Call on him. So wisdom starts with thinking rightly about your life. But then he moves to talking about living this way. This was kind of preparation. You gotta, you gotta think purposefully. Which really is a great definition for the word sober-minded. Maybe it's not in your vocabulary. It will be after this morning. What's a sober-minded Christian do? He or she thinks purposely, so you live purposely, and that's where he purposefully, and that's what he moves to in, in uh, 18 to 21. Now he's gonna talk about how do you live right with wisdom? Well, the first thing you don't do is you don't get drunk with wine for that's dissipation. That's the opposite of a wise life in every way, shape, and form. Why? Because the, the word for dissipation here is a word for loose and reckless living, debauchery, shamefulness, profligacy. You know what you summarize all that up with? Living in the moment. What's more of a picture than living in the moment than getting drunk? Because you really don't have a concern for the consequences of your actions right then and there, do you? Because the reason you don't is you are not going to have control over them. You're going to be so inebriated and outside of your own control, you have no idea what could happen to you or what could be done to you. And so you put yourself in jeopardy doing it. And then you put yourself at the mercy of people around you. So you're not considering others. You're not considering God. So he's saying, look, if you're going to get drunk with wine and be filled with this... Uh, this loose and reckless living, it's the same word, and I say that in the same word in Luke 15, 13 about the prodigal son who said he went away, got his dad's wealth, squandered it on loose, reckless, riotous living. I mean, there couldn't be a thing that's more opposite of walking in wisdom than that. Because walking in wisdom is thinking carefully, thinking carefully about where I'm going to go and how I'm going to step there. And, and this is the opposite in every way. Now, this could be Paul in verse 18 uh, bringing up this don't get drunk with wine, it, it could just be as it is, as in it's just on his heart to say, look, um, all these things I'm talking about, walking in the light, you know, don't walk in your old ways. Maybe for some reason he wanted to call this one out. Uh, there's other thoughts that in the Ephesian uh, false worship culture, Dionysus, who was the, the god of wine, was always mixed with religious worship, and maybe that's in the background. But, you know, if it was, he might set it. I think he's just really, whatever it led, leads him to say right there, look, you want to see the peak of foolishness, of a lack of sober-mindedness? Look at the person that gets drunk with wine, and that's dissipation. 
And one of the reasons this passage came to mind to talk this time of year in this holiday season is because it's no surprise to anyone that this time of year, any pastor should be concerned for his people and how they use alcohol this season. I mean, that's just the facts. I looked them up this week, American Addiction Center Online. The period between Thanksgiving and New Year's Day accounts for the most extreme cases of alcohol consumption alongside the 4th of July. So you'd be naive to think, like, oh, why do we got to bring this up today? Well, because for the next 42 days, it's going to be everywhere around you. It's going to be put in your face in commercials. It'll be at places you're going to eat and drink, houses you're going to hang out in. And what this passage is calling you to do is to think about this with wisdom. First and foremost, know what the Word of God says about it. And here's the overall picture of alcohol in the Bible, that it can be a blessing and it can be a curse, depending on how you use it. Now, first, it's got to be informed by what the Word of God says. Psalm 104.15 says it can cheer the heart of man. I mean, and it's not just the effect of it. It's, it's saying God created it to that end. God causes the grass to grow for the cattle, the vegetation for the labor of man, so that he may bring forth food from the earth, and in wine which makes man's heart glad, so that he make his face glisten with oil and food which sustains man's heart. Sometimes the false, oh, alcohol's of the devil. Really? Know what the truth of the Bible says about it. It can be a delight, and it could also be the most dangerous thing that you can mess with. And those two things can be true at the same time. So you go to passages like, right over from there, go to Proverbs 23. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Does that sound like delight? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long over wine. Those who go to taste mixed wine. Don't look on it when it's red, when it's sparkling in the cup and it goes down smooth. You're being even intoxicated with the idea of it. At last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. See what I'm saying? Those are dual aspects. It can satisfy you, Ecclesiastes 10.19, and it can bring you into slothfulness. Two verses earlier. And they sit right next to each other in the scripture. You know the first time you find out about wine in the Bible? Genesis 9.21. It's a source of shame to Noah. You know the next time you read about it in the Bible? Genesis 14.18. It's a source of honor to Abraham. So you've got to know the truth about it first. It's use and abuse. It's acceptance and avoidance are intertwined into the fabric of the Bible. So then it becomes not just a matter of truth and error. It becomes a matter of wisdom and folly, doesn't it? It's not just what I know about it but then what am I going to do with it? And you have to take all that into consideration and then you add to the fact that 1 Corinthians 10, 23 through 33, talking about Christian liberty, says that, yeah, some things can be lawful, but they're not what? They're not profitable. Some things can be lawful, but they're not edifying. And so you have to add that factor of wisdom into it. And then you have to come out on the other side saying, you know what? And I'm not making my decision based on someone else's conscience forced on me. I'm taking what the Word of God says and I'm applying it with a heart of wisdom. Because you'll be in situations and scenarios in the next 42 days that you're not going to be able to remember every single verse I said. But you're going to have to remember, I'm called to walk in wisdom. What does this occasion call me to be? Sober-minded. You have to do with that what you do. If you got an opportunity for the gospel in a year some event and somebody's serving alcohol... I mean, could even one drink take your eye off the ball? It could. 
It, 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 could, it could just mess with you just enough, just give you that buzz that you're not fully engaged, you're not fully there. You might have a slip of the tongue or you might just miss an opportunity that God was setting up for the gospel right there. And it may just be that moment that you go, man, I missed it because of this pleasure. But that's something you've got to deal with. I can't make that decision for you. Nobody else can. Now you can seek others' perspective, people that know you. Part of walking in wisdom is not just a perspective I have of myself. It's asking somebody else, hey, help me to see something I can't see. When I'm at the dinner table and I have that drink with it around Thanksgiving, do you see me start to get a little bit more on edge when so-and-so starts to talk? Those are legit things to ask. If you want to do what? If you want to maximize this season. If you want to redeem the time. Those are the things you ask. Now you take all this and you turn back to our scripture and you say that's just the first part of verse 18. The second part is the good part. Which is, look, instead of all this that could take you away from it, here's the one thing you're trying to be. Filled with the Spirit. That's the good thing. We talked about that a week or two ago. It's not just the things we're told to avoid. It's the thing we're pursuing. What are we pursuing here if we're talking about using our days with wisdom? We're talking about a spirit-filled life. Now that word being filled, there's, there's a connection that you could make in your mind to the same way that somebody that gets drunk and is filled with dissipation. It, it, there's something within them that's, that came from outside of them that's now in them that now is carrying them along. And you could say, okay, is that parallel to the work of the Spirit? You have to be careful with that. Because the word but be filled with the Holy Spirit is meant to set up a contrast. It's not to like compare the two and say, like, hey, just like you should be drunk on wine, be drunk in the Spirit. That's ridiculous. Because to, be, to act drunk on the Spirit in the same way you act drunk on wine flies against wisdom in every way, shape, or form, doesn't it? The, the loss of your senses, your, your inhibitions, what you might say, what you may do. Say, just rule that one out. And you hear some bad teaching out there on this. I came across this teaching from Bethel Church, and I mention them by name from time to time because you should avoid them. They had a class on the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Spirit. You know what they opened the class up with? Everybody imagine... Take out, uh, put your hands out and pretend you're holding the biggest bottle of spiritual wine you can and start to chug it and let's get drunk. I mean, I would be offended by that if it weren't so dumb. But that's what they teach. That has nothing to do with being filled with the Holy Spirit. Because filled with the Holy Spirit is a life of sober-minded wisdom that sees opportunities in front of us. And takes them for the glory of God, understanding His will, not just doing whatever I feel like doing. It just comes to me on a whim. But there's teaching out there that will tell you that. In fact, if you just even look where this text goes, there's a command to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But see, He doesn't tell you how to get into it, does He? He doesn't say, okay, these are the steps. Here's the experience. Instead, Paul's focus isn't on the experience, it's on the evidence. Do you see that? The command, and, and this is an imperative, so we are commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit, even though it's in the passive voice, which means it's done to you. And, and that's your sanctification. We work out what God works in. So that makes sense. Yeah, I'm, I'm responsible to be filled with the Holy Spirit, but yet it's not based on my ability. It's on whose? It's on God's. He fills me. He fills me with the life of Christ. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, is to conform me to the image of His Son. But really, Paul's focus here on when you say, what's it mean to be filled with the Spirit? We'll just read the next three verses. 
because he doesn't talk about the experience as much as the evidence that you have him. And you're full of him. It's right there. And, and they, they flow out of this word. This is the geeky Greek part. Uh, the be filled with the spirit verb is the command verb. And then speaking to one another, singing to one another, making melody in your heart, giving thanks and being submissive to one another. Those are all participles. If you remember it, grammar that are all connected back in, linked into that one command to be filled. So, you know, Curtis is going to get up here later and talk some smack on his football team this week, on my team, I should say. And if I'm giving my team a speech this week on uh, Turkey Day, the man-to-man football tournament, and I say, hey guys, go out there and be filled with the spirit of the Steelers. And then I said, running, blocking, tackling, throwing, catching. All of those things I want my team to do flow out of the one command. Be filled with that spirit. That's the same exact way he's giving this command. Be filled with the spirit, and now here are the things you do as evidence or a result of that. First is our speech changes. And it's parallel over. You could flip over real quick because they're parallel letters. Paul wrote them in jail at the same time. Colossians 3, Paul says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Here, over in Colossians 3, he says... Uh, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So one of the first things we see in a spirit-filled life is you got worship pumping through your veins, don't you? You want to give praise to God. The words that you're going to speak, I mean, in the time of Paul, when they showed up to worship God together, they didn't have PowerPoint and hymn books. They had things that they memorized. How did they memorize it? Back to Colossians 3, the word of Christ dwelled in them richly. The word was in them. And the Spirit takes the Word and they work together. They don't work opposite. It's not one or the other. Spirit-filled Christians are Word-filled Christians. Now, we're not saying those are the same thing. We're just saying when you, when you look at a person's life and saying they're acting like this, they're full of words of praise, singing, making melody in their heart, giving thanks, that's a Spirit-filled believer. How'd they get that way? The Word of Christ was dwelling in them richly. See how they connect? Who was the most Spirit-filled Word person that ever lived, it was Christ. I was just reading today. I mean, I didn't intend to find this passage, but in my daily Bible reading, I'm in Luke 4. Boom, right in front of me. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And what happens to him in the wilderness? He's tempted. And how does he fight that temptation and not lose? He's full of the Word of God. So, so what's a Spirit-filled Christian? A person that's what? Filled with the Word. Walking by the Spirit, not gratifying the desires of the flesh, able to overcome temptation. It's just the life of Christ in you, the full life of Christ. So it shows itself in our speech, in our singing, even making melody with your heart to the Lord. I was talking to a brother this week who's going through a trial, and and I was asking him how he was doing through it, and and it was so cool. As I'm studying this, he says, yeah, sometimes... um, I'm just, there's just a song in my heart that's getting me through it. Even when you can't even form the words on your mouth. That's a spirit-filled man. Because he's getting ministered to on the inside. Even before it comes out on the outside. And then there's thankfulness. I mean, talk about, I mean, when you, just think about, you know the wackos out there that talk about what the spirit-filled life is like. I mean, the charlatans, the showmans. But when you get around a person that's really like Christ, 
This is what they're like. They're giving thanks for things. They're they're full of gratitude. They're not full of gimme and I need attention and let me do. No, they're verse 20. Given thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. That's a Trinitarian formula there. This Spirit-filled Christian understands that full of the Holy Spirit, I am thankful to God my Father as His child for His Son who died for me. And then they're subject to one another in the fear of Christ. There's an attitude of submission. So you see how speaking, singing, praising, thanking, and submitting, that's a Holy Spirit-filled life. Not pointing us to some momentary experience, but daily, visible, audible evidences of His work. So back to the start. How's somebody going to recognize you this holiday from a mile away? Walking in wisdom? Full of the Spirit? How you use your mouth? Because we all know at the holidays, we can get in trouble with our tongue. We can get in that argument. Have that debate and then regret it and feel like we lost an opportunity. Well, walking in wisdom and being spirit-filled, think how verse 19 affects that. Think how giving thanks affects it this holiday for you. That um, if that attitude in your heart is one of thankfulness, you know, how's that change the way you look at how certain days are going to go? You know, oh, the, the food didn't turn out the way I wanted to. Everybody showed up late. Our default would be to complain versus, you know, say, Lord, you're in charge of all this. Thanks for renewing my mind. It's going to be okay, but I want to be a witness for you. And that last but not least, verse 21, cherry on top, right? Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. You think a little more um, showing preference to others helps around the holiday? When we have that spirit of peace and love in us, and kindness and gentleness that I don't always got to get my way this season. I mean, that could be in the real competitive Black Friday shopping list. And you're saying, you know what? I, I don't need to be in it for me. You know, bumping somebody out to get the last TV. Could happen. What's your testimony going to be that day? And then at the most close relationships, whereas probably where we mess up the most on this is we just kind of want certain things to go our way. We don't want people to play music until it's actually Christmas and you know, we can get, get sideways over silly things like that. But an aspect of the spirit-filled Christian life is that submissive heart. It says it doesn't always got to be what I want because I'm here to do this holiday season what he wants. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for its helpfulness, its clarity, its power. Thank you for the way in which it shapes us. And it doesn't just do this in a haphazard fashion. It shapes us, it conforms us by your Spirit's illumination and teaching into the image of Christ. And that's what we want, Father, more than anything is to represent Christ well this holiday. So help us to do that. Even we just commit, even this last time we have together now to... to, Stir each other up to love and good deeds on our way out today in our life groups this week because we want to maximize this time for your glory because it's redeemed time and it was cost, the cost was your son. Thank you for him. We pray in his name, amen.